Near the end of his life, the American civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., began thinking more deeply about poverty. King started to wonder why, even with significant advancements in civil rights, blacks continued to struggle to achieve financial independence and gainful employment. King ultimately concluded that racial divisions were keeping America's poor and working classes from uniting to demand a more just economy. In May 1967, King told his closest followers that we have moved from the era of civil rights to the era of human rights. There must be a radical redistribution of economic and political power. Soon after, he announced the Poor People's Campaign, an effort to organize poor people of all races to march on Washington and ask for better access to housing, jobs, and education. In a 1968 address to the Southern Christian Leadership Council, he expressed his vision. And uh, power for poor people will really mean having the ability, the togetherness, the assertiveness, and the aggressiveness to make the power structure of this nation say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. And it is my hope that we will get together and be together and really stand up to gain power for poor people, black people, Mexican-Americans, American Indians, Puerto Ricans, Appalachian whites, all working together to solve the problem of poverty. King began to travel around the country to build support for the Poor People's Campaign. On April 3, 1968, he traveled to Memphis, Tennessee, to lend his voice to a strike by the city's sanitation workers, who for years had suffered from low pay and dangerous working conditions. The immediate spark for the strike was the death of two workers who had been crushed to death by garbage compactors. That evening, he gave a speech at Mason Temple Church, where he called for the poor and working class of every race to unite. Whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. It turned out to be King's final public address. He was assassinated the following day. This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. Today on the podcast, we're looking at race, class, and the American dream. What it means to be white in a world that's anything but. Fifty years after his death, King's vision of a multiracial coalition of the poor and working class remains unfulfilled. Race continues to be a wedge preventing greater political solidarity between poor whites and poor people of color. The 2016 presidential election offers stark evidence of this. 67% of non-college-educated whites voted for Donald Trump, while more than 88% of non-college-educated blacks voted for Hillary Clinton. Why has a multiracial coalition of the working class remained so elusive? 
I think it's part of the only way we understand it is the invention of whiteness. This right? is Joshua Bennett, a member of the Harvard University Society of Fellows and an award-winning poet. He thinks that the idea of whiteness so blinds that poor whiteness whites from voting for their best interests. I think you could very well talk about sort of wealthy white elites, right, and how the way whiteness functions is actually to make sure poor white people never understand that their best class interests are actually aligned with the black and Latino people they're taught to hate on the basis of race, right? Um, that the idea is even if I'm poor, at least I'm not black, right? And what that does is um, you're, you're being, you think you're being given a sort of sliver of the pie when you're not even in the room. Whiteness is a term that captures the visible and invisible benefits that come with being a European-American in the United States. The term first started being used in the 1680s in colonial Virginia. Many European immigrants came over to America as indentured servants, agreeing to work for a certain number of years before being granted freedom. They often worked in the same tobacco field side by side with African slaves. Both were treated cruelly, controlled by the same masters and lashed by the same whips. But the African slaves and European indentured servants began to fight back together. In 1676, white bondsmen and black slaves met secretly to plot an armed uprising and demand freedom. They marched together on Jamestown, torched the city, and forced the royal governor back to England. The rebellion terrified the ruling landowners. They recognized the danger to their position if all members of the underclass banded together. They responded by deliberately seeking to foster racial contempt between black and white laborers. They started giving preferential treatment to whites, allowing them to direct affairs in the field, join the militia, and carry firearms. Wealthy landowners and their brethren began speaking more deliberately about a white race. The Commonwealth's governing House of Burgesses passed the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705, stripping blacks of many rights they had previously had and effectively legalizing white supremacy. The landowners used racism as a device to maintain economic control. Although initially only applied to British Protestants, over the decades and centuries, the status of whiteness was gradually granted to new immigrant groups previously denied the label, including the Irish, Italians, Mormons, and Jews. But at its root, whiteness has always been about staying on top of a social hierarchy based on the color of one's skin. Yeah, I'm a very, uh, you know, lucky guy. I got a lot going for me. I'm, I'm healthy, I'm relatively young, I'm white, which thank God for that shit, boy. That is a huge leg up. Are you kidding me? Oh, God, I love being white. I really do. This is the comedian Louis C.K.'s take on whiteness from a stand-up performance in 2008. Seriously, if you're not white, you're missing out because this shit is thoroughly good. And but let me be clear, by the way, I'm not saying that white people are better. I'm saying that being white is clearly better. Who could even argue? <laughs> if it was an option, I would re-up every year. Oh, yeah, I'll take white again. Absolutely. I've been enjoying that. I'm going to stick with white. Thank you. Here's how great it is to be white. I could get in a time machine and go to any time, and it would be fucking awesome when I get there. It's important to think about the relationship of this election to whiteness. That's Julian Borg, an associate professor of history at Boston College. Borg believes that at least some of the support for Donald Trump is a result of the anxiety felt by many whites about losing long-held economic and political power. Part of the politics of whiteness has to do with, with the loss of privilege and that what may be new to some white people has been experienced in many quarters for many decades and centuries by other parts of the American population. The percentage of the white population in the U.S. has fallen from 80 percent in 1980 
to 62% in 2014. In the same time frame, African American, Latino, and Asian American populations have grown. These trends are only expected to continue. But it's not just demographic changes that are worrying whites. I always want to remind people, middle class people, that we can't equate class privilege with white privilege. Today, in American society, like 42.5% uh, of people living below the poverty line are white. This is Nancy Eisenberg, a professor of history at Louisiana State University and author of the book White Trash, which looks at the long history of white poverty in America. She explains that the idea of whiteness is deeply entwined with the American dream of being able to move up the social ladder. It's also a dream that is increasingly out of reach for lower-income whites. We tell ourselves these stories because we want to believe that Americans have always believed in social equality, that this is the land of opportunity. But the facts just don't back it up. Unemployment, wage stagnation, family breakup, drug addiction. These are common features in many poor white communities today. And these challenges are prompting many whites to ask themselves, what does it mean to be white in America in 2017? What makes answering this question so hard for some is that whiteness was constructed as a neutral quality, merely a blank canvas. Joshua Bennett discusses the danger of this belief. The philosopher George Yancey writes about this so powerfully. He says that um, whiteness is exclusive transcendence, right? You're taught that you're just an individual, but you have no body, you're just ideas, right? And I think that's an incredible violence. When I talk to children and teach workshops for middle school kids, I just start with narrative, right? And so often, especially for my white students, they'll say, well, I don't have a story, right? They'll say, I'm just, I'm normal, I'm nothing. I'm like, how could you be nothing? Julian Borg shared a similar story. There was a first year student last year and as in a class, and as people went around the room and talked about who they were and where they came from, part of their identities where I was, I am Filipino American or African American. And it came around to a white student who said, I'm just white. That strange feeling that whites have that they are nothing is a problem. It's a problem because it's actually another way of feeling that whites are everything. Or in other words, that whiteness is the default, universal perspective of humanity, and everyone else is in some ways a deviation from that universal standard. Recent events in 2017 show how this often unconscious belief in white universality can warp into a dangerous assertion of imagined white superiority. At a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia this August, white nationalists sought to prevent the town from removing a statue erected in honor of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. On a boiling southern afternoon, the protests turned violent, and a white supremacist mowed down dozens of counter-protesters with his car, killing a young paralegal and injuring many others. You will not replace us! There's a striking example from modern technology that shows how damaging the assumption of a white default can be. In early photography, black furniture and black people wouldn't show up in the final picture, as the image always lacked the proper light. The development of what we now call white balance, a way of balancing light color in a frame, was centered around color correcting to a woman photographic experts know as Shirley, a white woman wearing black and white in front of a gray background. White was considered normal, and other skin tone couldn't hold up to the glare of the camera lens. It wasn't until Kodak was forced by corporate clients like chocolate companies to better rationalize color film for darker shades that black and brown people began showing up naturally in standard film stock. The first step to a better meaning of whiteness, then, 
one not tied to being on top of a racial hierarchy, is to recognize that whiteness has a history. It is a history that has shifted and evolved over many centuries. And if we are to have any chance of achieving Martin Luther King's vision of a multiracial coalition that works on behalf of the poor, it will need to become a meaning that helps whites not see black and brown advancement as coming at their expense. During that last speech in Memphis, just hours before his death, Dr. King urged his audience to keep this hope of multiracial unity alive. It's a hope we should all have, and a dream we should all work for. Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubandspokeaudio.org. Today I want to tell you about a Hub and Spoke show called Soonish. It's a show about technology, and it's hosted by a wonderful journalist named Wade Rausch. In one episode called Astropreneurs, he talks about how there's a new era of space exploration being pioneered not by governments, but by ambitious business people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. It's a development that has profound implications for life on Earth and beyond. Check it out at soonishpodcast.org.